I can't help myself uh, during this time of transition but to point out that there is a progression in the Ten Commandments. Uh, no other gods before me, no idols, do not take God's name in vain. And then what is the fourth commandment? Anybody know? Sabbath day, keep it holy. Uh, the, the way that we show, the way that we demonstrate that there are no other gods before God in our life and that we are worshiping Him as we should is by honoring and obeying the Sabbath day, uh, by gathering together according to the command of, of God uh, to give God the worship that is so rightly deserved uh, by Him. It's true we worship God in the whole of life, but His Word also calls us to worship Him corporately and to have Him at the center of our lives on a weekly basis. Genesis chapter 3, verses 9-13 through 13 is the sermon text for today. Genesis 3, 9 through 13, and we will also read Romans 8, 18 through 25. I will say from the outset that as I wrote this sermon, I, I was tempted to break it up, this passage, up into little pieces as well. There, there is so much here. It is such a rich text, but it does need to be considered in its entirety if we are to understand uh, the message of it. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word, Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let us go now to the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. There the Apostle Paul writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not, only, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. With patience. So far, the reading of God's most holy word, and we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of His word and the application of it today. The book of Genesis is a book of 
about beginnings. It's the book uh, that tells us about the beginning of things. And uh, if you would remember, the first words uh, of, of the book are uh, this, uh, are in the beginning, excuse me, are in the beginning. Uh, in fact, that is what the word Genesis means. The word means origin or root or beginning or, or start. Uh, the book of Genesis is a book about the beginning of things. And, and when I say that, I do not only mean that it is a book about the beginning of creation. Indeed, uh, that is the first thing that is described to us in the book of Genesis, uh, the beginning of God's creation. Uh, That is what the book of Genesis is probably most known for. And when we hear that the book is about beginnings, we probably think of uh, the origin of of, of the universe. Uh, It tells us of God's creation of all things seen and unseen. But many other beginnings are mentioned in the book of Genesis, uh, the beginning of God's covenant with man, the beginning of marriage, the beginning of sin, etc., etc. And as we progress through the remainder of the book, we will find that it is divided into sections which describe the beginning and progression of certain family histories. Uh, Those sections are introduced by the phrase, these are the generations of, or something similar to that. And so the book of Genesis is a book about the beginning of things, And this is true not only of the beginning of the book, but but of the whole thing. And I think it is important for us to recognize that the beginning of something is being described to us in the verses that we are considering today. Here in Genesis 3, 14 through 24, we encounter a transition. It is the transition from the world as it came from the hand of God, a world that was good and upright and pure, to a world that is now tainted by sin and its effects. Here in Genesis 3.14 through to the end of the chapter, we, we find a description of the beginning of the world as it now is. It's a description of the beginning of the world as it now is. The world, that is to say the world of Genesis 3.14 and following, is the world that you and I live in. It is not a world that is substantially different from the one that came from the hand of God in the beginning, but it is qualitatively different. And what I mean is that we do live in the same physical world made by God in the beginning. Uh, The stars that we see in the sky are the stars that came into existence by the word of God. Uh, The mountains are God's mountains. The trees are God's trees. And the people that we see are His people by virtue of creation. Uh, That the world that we live in today is, 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 not un, is not substantially different from the one that came from the hand of God in the beginning. But in another respect, it is a very different world, and I hope that you would agree with this. Uh, for this world that we live in today is fallen. This world is sinful. This world is under God's curse because of our rebellion. And how important it is for us to recognize this distinction in Genesis 1, we are told of the beginning of God's creation. In Genesis 2, we are told of the beginning of God's covenant. But in Genesis 3, we are told of the beginning of man's sin and its effects. Adam's breaking of the covenant of life is described to us here, along with its consequences. And so we must distinguish between the world as it came from the hand of God, a world that was upright and pure and good, And the world that now is, a world that is ravaged by sin and the effects of sin. And I'm afraid that many ignore this distinction. I'm afraid that many, even many who claim to be Christian, ignore 
the beginning of our sin and misery that is so clearly described to us here in Genesis chapter 3. And it's no wonder then that they are terribly disoriented and confused when they look out upon the world and see so much sin and misery and death. The wickedness that we see in the world and the wickedness that we see in our own heart should always grieve the Christian, but it should not leave us disoriented and confused, uh, for the Scriptures are, are clear. We now live in God's world, but it is a fallen world, a world that is characterized not by life, but by death. The transition from the world in its good and upright state to the world in its sinful, fallen, and cursed state is what is described to us here in Genesis 3. But as we will see, humanity was not left without hope. Notice that in this passage, God addresses each of the rebels one at a time to pronounce curses or sentences upon them because of their rebellion. They had each sinned, and God announced to them what the ramifications for their sin would be. Uh, The order is reversed, notice, when compared to God's questioning of the rebels in the previous passage. Adam was questioned first by God, but curses are pronounced upon him last. This is because he was most responsible for the keeping of the covenant and also for the breaking of it. Eve was questioned second, but she is cursed second, and the serpent was never questioned. And the reason for this is that room for repentance and the offer of salvation was not given to the serpent. The serpent is only cursed, and he is cursed first for being the one who brought the temptation to the woman. In verse 14, we read these words, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There is so much here in this little little passage. We should give careful attention to it. If we are going to interpret this text correctly, and by this I mean this text, verses 14 and 15, but also the whole of the, of the passage that we are considering today, it is important for us to recognize that it contains layers of meaning. This entire passage contains layers of meaning. And again, I am not just referring to verses 14 and 15, but to the whole passage which runs from verse 14 to 19. In this entire section, we will encounter layers of meaning And by that I mean the text is written in such a way that it can and should be interpreted in multiple ways, and deliberately so. The reader, when considering the curse pronounced upon the snake, the woman in Adam, should be able to recognize that there is a kind of basic and surface level meaning, but there is also a deeper and more profound meaning to the text. I'm not saying that we are free to interpret all Scripture in this way. Hear me clearly. We are not free to interpret all Scripture in this way as if there are always layers of meaning to the text of Scripture. But this particular passage requires that we see layers of meaning to it. Uh, For example, the curse that is pronounced upon the serpent. Let's consider that. The question that we must ask is, who exactly is God cursing here in this passage. Who is he cursing? Did God curse the snake that was used as an instrument in the temptation of Eve? Is that who he is cursing here? The snake, the particular snake that was used as an instrument in the temptation of Eve? Or 
Did God curse all snakes more generally? Or does this curse ultimately apply to Satan, who used the snake as an instrument to tempt Eve? Which is it? What is going on here in this text? I actually think the answer is yes. All of, the, all of the above. There are layers of meaning to this passage. This passage, when considered in context, and, and by context I do not only mean the immediate context of Genesis, but the context of the whole of Scripture, must be interpreted as having layers of meaning. Notice that the Lord God spoke to that particular serpent when He said, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This God spoke to a particular serpent. That snake was cursed above all livestock and beasts of the field. That snake would go on its belly. That snake would eat dust. It will become clear that not only would this apply to that snake, but to all snakes. But first of all, God spoke to that snake. Some have actually wondered... Uh, did snakes have legs prior to this curse being pronounced upon them? Uh, did you hear the passage? Uh, you shall go now on your belly, dust shall be your food, because you're crawling there on the, on the earth. I, I really doubt that snakes had legs. Some good and godly men actually hold to that interpretation. I doubt it. But perhaps snakes did move about with a posture that was more upright. Perhaps snakes moved about with their heads lifted up high, and proud, but having been used as an instrument for temptation, the serpent was then bound to the earth to crawl upon it with its head laid low where it would swallow dust. The curse is actually fitting, isn't it? The serpent was used by the evil one to rise up against God in pride, and so what did God do? He made it low. And is there any beast of the field more closely bound to the earth and further removed from heaven than the snake. The imagery is powerful, isn't it? Think of all the beasts of the field. It's the snake that is slammed down to the earth, <laughs> closest to the earth and furthest from heaven. And so the symbolism is powerful, I think, and we could go on in teasing out the symbolism here. We might also ask, if the snake was only used as an instrument, why then must it bear a curse? It is not as if it was actually the snake, that physical animal that was bringing the temptation to Eve. There was some power within it that was using it as an instrument. Then why must it bear a curse to go about on its belly and to eat dust? You know, why, why did that need to be pronounced upon it? Two things need to be noticed. One, you would do well to notice that all of creation bears a curse as a result of the fall. In a moment we will read that the ground was cursed by God because of Adam's sin. When the snake was cursed, he was said to be cursed above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, indicating that even the beasts of the field, the other livestock, bore some sort of curse as a result of, of Adam's sin and as a result of the temptation that came by way of the evil one. Um, they too were affected by the fall, evidently. And Paul, in that passage that was read at the beginning of this sermon, says that creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope, who is the one that has subjected creation to futility? It is God who has done that through the curse that He pronounced upon, yes, the man and the woman, but also the snake and the beasts of the field, and even upon the land. All of creation, therefore, now groans, awaiting for the adoption of the sons of God. And so snakes are not the only thing that are cursed or subject to futility because of the rebellion of Satan and Adam. All of creation has been touched, but snakes in particular, we are told. 
2, Although the snake was only used as an instrument, it is actually fitting that it bear the curse given the hideousness of the act that was carried out through it, namely the temptation of man. I believe it was Calvin who illustrated this principle by mentioning that any father would destroy the sword that was used to slay his son if it came into his possession. The sword was only the instrument, we might say. It doesn't have a will. It didn't choose to slay the son. Someone else did. They used the sword as an instrument to do so. But any father who came into the possession of the sword that was used to slay his son would without a doubt destroy that thing because it was used to do something so terrible. It is fitting that it, though only an instrument, bear a form of judgment because of what it was used to do. And I think that is what we see here in the Genesis uh, narrative. The snake, though only an instrument, bore a curse uh, because of the hideousness of what it was used to do. Uh, This, I think, is the most basic and simple interpretation of this text. We are to understand that the snake that was used as an instrument to bring about the temptation of Eve was cursed by God. But it is also clear that it was not just that snake, but all snakes that were cursed. In verse 15 we read, I will put in between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Indeed, uh, from this moment, snakes and humans uh, have been and always will be hostile towards one another. Snakes will always strike at the heel of man and man will always strike at the head of snakes. It is just the way things are today. And so on the most basic level, the curse of verses 14 through 15 is to be understood as having been directed towards the snake that was used as an instrument to tempt Eve and also to all snakes. And and why? I can't help but think that we are to remember the first temptation, the fall, and the ongoing work of the tempter when we look at snakes. You are certainly free to like or dislike snakes. I don't like them. I don't understand why people do, but some do. Some fear them, others do not. All of that really is irrelevant, though. All should be reminded of the cunning and crafty schemes of the evil one when they see a snake. All should be reminded of how deadly Satan is. All should remember the fall and its effects when they watch a snake slither along, locked to the earth and eating dust. It should serve as a perpetual reminder to us of what the evil one used the snake to do at the beginning of time. His character is, is illustrated by the snake. His tactics are illustrated by the snake. He is cunning, isn't he? He is sly. He is deadly. On the surface, the curse is pronounced upon the snake who was used to tempt Eve and upon snakes in general. But clearly the curse is aimed not just at serpents, but at the one who used the snake as an instrument to tempt Eve and through her, Adam. Though Eve saw the body of a serpent, what did she hear? She heard the voice of Satan. That is the voice that she heard. The rest of Scripture makes this abundantly clear. And I think this is the deeper meaning of the text. The rest of Scripture demands that we interpret this text with layers of meaning to it, a most basic meaning, but also a deeper meaning. Here, ultimately, it is Satan, the evil one, the devil, who is cursed by God. How then does this curse apply to Satan? Well, Satan is cursed more than any other thing in all of God's creation. Satan, having rebelled against his Maker, would in due time be barred from heaven and bound to the earth. And this war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that is mentioned in verse 15 will ultimately play out not between snakes and humans, but within the human race itself. 
Some will be children of the evil one, and others will be children of God. Uh, the rest of Scripture demands that we interpret Genesis 3, 14, and 15 in this way as applying ultimately to Satan himself and to the seed of the woman, those who belong to God by faith. Um, as we will see, this is where the story of Genesis and indeed the story of Scripture will go from this point forward. The words, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, do not ultimately pertain to the strife that exists between snakes and humans, but to the strife that will exist between those who are children of the devil and those who are children of God by faith. It is a war between the evil one and God himself, the evil one's children and God's children uh, that is referenced here ultimately. And, and to prove the fact that there are children of the devil and children of God, I only need to quote Jesus' words to the non-believing Jews when he said, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What did Christ say to those who persisted in their unbelief? He says, You are of your father, the devil. You belong to him. Not because you are demon-possessed in some spooky way or anything like that, but because you do His will. You reject God, you reject God's Word, you reject God's Son, showing that you belong not to God, though you claim to. You belong to the evil one himself. Uh, this Jesus said to them as they were claiming to be children of God by virtue of their heritage. He said, look at our heritage. Look at where we have descended from. Look at our genealogy. We are children of God. Christ himself, being a Jew, said, No, you are not children of God by virtue of your heritage. What matters is faith and obedience to God. You are proving now that you are children of the devil. According to Christ, there are children of the devil in this world, and there are children of God. And the thing that distinguishes one from the other is faith in God and in the promises of God. So the words, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, are not ultimately about the conflict between snakes and humans. That is the superficial meaning. That is the surface level meaning. But ultimately these words are about the conflict that will go on throughout the history of the world between the evil one and those who belong to him in the world and God and those who belong to him in the world. It will not take long for this conflict to manifest itself in the world. In Genesis chapter 4, we find the story of Cain and Abel. That story should be familiar to you. And as we will see, though both were sons of Eve, only one had the faith of Eve. Put into the terms of Genesis 3.15 and also John 8.44, Cain though he was born from Eve, was in fact of the seed of the serpent. Whereas Abel, though she too, he too was born of Eve, was of the seed of the woman. Abel belonged to the righteous line and to God, whereas Cain belonged to the unrighteous line and to the evil one. You, you know the story, at least you should. Cain rose up and what did he do? He killed Abel, his own, his own brother. He, he Put him to death, and, and over what? Over the issue of, of jealousy, I suppose. Uh, here Abel worshipped God properly and from the heart. Cain did not. 
He went through the motions. He went through the externals of religion. He, he, he went through the motions, but his worship was not true. He did not have faith. He did not have the faith of Abel. So here in Genesis chapter 4, we are actually told uh, or helped to understand what Genesis 3, 14 and 15 mean. Here we see the outworking of these lines, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Cain belonged to one and Abel the other. Cain did not worship God from faith. Abel did. And what did Cain do except rise up and put Abel to death? Here we have this this conflict, this war, this battle that was described to us in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, playing out before our very eyes as the narrative of Genesis progresses. It's not as if this story is just told to us because it's an interesting story. It it shows us what the meaning of this curse actually was. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is actually why the genealogies of Genesis are so important. Have you ever read through the book of Genesis and you come to the genealogies and you just kind of, okay, let's get, let's get back to the important stuff, right? The, the narrative about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, I love the story of Joseph. Let's skip the genealogies. What are those genealogies telling us, though? They're, in fact, describing to us the the, the, the unrighteous line and the righteous line. And what are these stories communicating to us except for God's faithfulness to preserve His people, the righteous line that descend from Eve. The ones who have faith, God is faithful to preserve them. Joseph is my favorite story of them all, actually, but what did he do? God preserved Joseph. And through Joseph, He preserved His, his people, that, that righteous line. And where does Genesis 3.15 find its ultimate fulfillment? The story of Scripture is very clear. The seed of the woman will finally crush the head of the serpent. And who will do that except Christ Jesus our Lord? You see. So yes, the seed is to be taken as a collective noun referring to the descendants of Eve who have faith and the descendants of Satan who do not. Yes, it's to be taken as a collective noun. But ultimately, uh, this, this seed points to one, namely to the Christ who would be the one who crushes the head of the serpent, who offers up that decisive blow to him, that victorious blow. Notice, therefore, that the gospel is found here in Genesis 3.15 in seed form. The good news of Christ is embedded in miniature in the curse that was pronounced upon the serpent. World history will be marked by a conflict between God and the evil one, between the children of God and the children of the devil, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But a Savior would eventually come. That is what God says. When He curses the serpent, He is making that announcement. Indeed, He made that announcement in the hearing of Adam and Eve, too. He is making that announcement. A Savior would eventually come. The serpent will have its victories. The serpent will strike at the heel of the people of God. The serpent will strike at the heel of man. The serpent will have his victories for sure. But in the end, the seed of the woman will win the war. In the end, the seed of the woman will strike that decisive blow to the evil one himself, crushing the evil one's head. And so that gospel message is is, is there in seed form in that curse that was pronounced upon the serpent. What do I mean by in seed form? Well, it would be difficult to know the, the, the fullness of, of the gospel story, of, of the coming of the Christ, etc., etc., by just reading Genesis 3.15. But we see that that story, the story of the gospel, does grow and mature and develop from there. This, this first word 
uh, concerning the gospel was spoken in the curse that was pronounced upon the serpent. Uh, what does the curse pronounced upon the serpent reveal about the world and its fallen state? Again, it will be marked by conflict, physical and spiritual. Man, including those who belong to God, will suffer in this age. The serpent will bruise the heel of man. But God has not left the world without hope. A Savior has been provided, Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what is revealed to us about the world as it now is in its fallen state. In verse 16, we encounter the judgment pronounced upon the woman. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for or contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Though this judgment was pronounced upon the woman Eve in particular, clearly it applies to all women. When God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, it means that women would experience pain in the process of giving birth, uh, more pain than they would have otherwise, I suppose. And certainly, the labor pains that women experience are severe. I think it is worth noting that other species give birth to their young with ease when compared to our species. Have you ever thought of that? The labor process for women is arduous. Eve was created with the ability, the wonderful ability, to give birth to children. It's a marvelous and joyous gift, but now, because of her sin, it would involve pain. And not only would the process of childbirth involve pain, so too the once blissful relationship between wife and husband would be marked by sorrow. To Eve, God said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's an interesting statement here. The phrase is actually a bit difficult to translate. Some translations say, your desire shall be for your husband. Others say, your desire shall be unto your husband. The ESV uses the word contrary. The NET is most bold in its translation when it says, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. I actually think that this might get to the heart of the idea. The woman was created to function as man's helper. She was to live in loving submission to him. He was to lovingly lead her. But Eve upended God's design for things when she ate of the fruit and acted as an agent of temptation to her husband. And the effect of the fall was that wives now desire to control their husbands instead of living in loving submission to them. And the husbands dominate their wives instead of lovingly leading them. Does this not describe the history of the relationship between husbands and wives in the world today, in this fallen world? Of course, Christ renews all of this. Christ gives us the ability to live according to His design. But indeed, to consider the history of the relationship between husbands and wives, here, here we see it. Women, instead of lovingly submitting to their husbands, try to control them somehow. And husbands tend to dominate their wives, be domineering over them instead of lovingly leading them as the Scriptures call us to. And so we see that uh, Eve was created to, to live in a certain way. She was to bring forth children. That would now involve pain. She was to lovingly submit to her husband. Now she would try to control him and he would dominate her. Uh, the effects of Eve's sin are terrible and, and tremendous. I 
should also say I had it in my manuscript and then removed it and I want to put it back again, I think. Uh, that remark that in pain you shall bring forth children, I, I know that it has mainly to do with the process of giving birth. It's going to be a painful process. But I can't help but think that on a deeper level it does not also apply to the whole process of raising children as well. Right? I mean, what a, what a gift, what a joyous thing. Children, my children, don't misunderstand me. I, I do love uh, the process of, of being a father to my children. Uh, but because we live in a fallen world, that, that process is accentuated by struggle, by strife now, by tears. Uh, how many parents have wept over the ch- their children? Uh, maybe they wept, they've wept because of what their children are experiencing, the difficulties they are going through. Maybe they have wept uh, because of the choices their children are making. Uh, this whole process, not only of giving birth to children, but of even raising children, even into adulthood is accentuated by, by difficulty, by sorrow, because of our fall into sin. Sin is terrible. The effects of it are also terrible. The judgments pronounced upon the man are stated last, and they are the most extensive, for the covenant was made with him, and he was the covenant breaker. Verse 17, But to Adam... God said, and by the way, commentators, uh, some believe that this is the first time that the word, the Hebrew word translated as Adam is used as an actual name. Uh, Adam can mean man or it can mean Adam, the name of the man. Uh, Some believe that this is the first time that Adam is called by that name. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The root of Adam's sin was that he listened to the voice of his wife instead of the voice of God. The root of Eve's sin was that she listened to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of God. Brothers and sisters, let us be careful to listen to God's word and not to other voices, not to other opinions. Notice that Adam sinned when he ate of the forbidden tree. Therefore, he is judged in his eating. He is judged as it pertains to his eating. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In other words, you will not have access to the lush uh, fruit of the garden any longer, but you will have to, you will have to cultivate uh, your food. You will eat of those things which were once considered wild plants. Uh, you'll be bound uh, from the garden paradise of God. Uh, Gordon Wynnum comments on this verse saying, The toil that now lies behind the preparation of every meal is a reminder of the fall and is made the more painful by the memory of the ready supply of food within the garden. The ground is cursed. Land that is blessed by God is well watered and fertile. Cursed ground will lack such qualities. Even the ground was cursed by God because of Adam's sin. Man will eat of the fruit of the ground in pain This is reminiscent of the judgment that was pronounced upon the woman. The woman was designed by God to be a mother, and now that would involve pain. The man was to be a farmer and provider, and now that would involve pain. 
His work would be difficult. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, the text says. Work is not a punishment in itself. Understand that, brothers and sisters. Work is a gift from God. In fact, Adam and Eve in paradise were to work in obedience to God and to the glory of God, but it would have been enjoyable work, prosperous work, work that perhaps involved effort, but it would have not have been frustrating as it tends to be uh, today. Uh, survival now will be a struggle for Adam and Eve. Work will be difficult and it will be accentuated by frustration. And the guarantee of death means that all of the toil and pain experienced in this life is meaningless and vain for the one who is not in Christ. Even if man were to get ahead in his work, all would be lost when he returns to the ground from which he was taken. We don't take anything with us into eternity. The Christian should not be afraid to talk about the emptiness and vanity of life in this fallen world. Though we experience many pleasures in this world by the grace of God, all is truly vain given that death is inevitable. Death is inevitable. The book of Ecclesiastes is all about that. It's a wonderfully helpful book that that must be read, not in parts, but in in its entirety, you understand. Uh, listen to the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes. This, these are the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. What, what is the writer of Ecclesiastes saying? Life is vain now in this fallen world. I say that it must be read not just at the beginning, but it's in entirety, because eventually the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes does make one exception, doesn't he? He says life is completely vain unless we fear God and keep His commandments, unless we have faith in God, unless we live to the glory of God and therefore store up treasures in heaven. Life is completely vain, and that is the thing that Adam was handed over to when he fell into sin. He was handed over to a life that was marked by vanity. He would toil, he would struggle, he would experience pain, and then he would return to the dust, you see. He was handed over to a vain life. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And some have mocked at that saying, God is a liar, isn't he? Because look at Adam lived for hundreds of years. And how would we reply to that except saying, no, in the day that he ate of it, he died. He died. He was separated from God. He was handed over to this life marked by toil, by struggle, and he was given over to vanity, to vanity. Brothers and sisters, Christ renews all of that. Christ changes all of that. All of a sudden, we have a life that is meaningful and not meaningless if we are in Christ Jesus. But if we are not in Christ Jesus, not living for God and His glory, your life is vanity. What are you living for? What are you chasing after? 
What is it? What are you storing up your treasures for? You're going to return to the dust and you will stand before your maker and it will benefit you. Nothing at all, you see. Now, this is what it means for Adam to have died. He was handed over to this vain and, and meaningless life. This is true. This is the true and unfailing word of God. Life in this world is ultimately vain because of sin and death. When Adam ate of that forbidden tree, he died, though he went on living for many years afterwards. He entered into that state of death. Death was inevitable for him. His life would be characterized by travail. He would be separated from God by whom and for whom he was made. From dust Adam was made, and to dust he would return. All would be vain for him, apart from the gracious intervention of God. That should be clear to us, brothers and sisters. How important it is to recognize, however, that embedded within these curses and judgments, we do find good news. We find words of hope and promise, and this should be astonishing to us. Embedded within these curses and judgments, we find good news, words of hope and promise. It should be recognized that the judgments pronounced upon the man and the woman are not the final judgment. Are, are you struck by that? We do not see the final judgment here. Judgments are pronounced upon them, but this is not the final judgment. That's amazing that this is not the final judgment. I've already mentioned to you the good news that is embedded within the curse pronounced upon the serpent. The seed of the woman would one day have total victory over the serpent. And his seed. Good news is embedded there. But notice also verses 20 and 21. There we are told the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What a strange title for this woman, given what she has done. She's called Eve, for she was the mother of all living. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Though we have been calling the woman by the name Eve throughout this narrative, this is, in fact, the first time the name is mentioned in Genesis. Uh, the name Eve means living or making alive. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, the text says. And I think that the placement of this comment in this narrative is very significant. It comes after all that has been said concerning her sin and the effects of her sin upon the human race. It seems to me, given where the narrative has come from, she should be called something that's associated with, with death, but instead she is called Eve. She is called the mother of, of all living. Of course, Eve is the mother of all living in the sense that all of humanity would descend from her. That is the, the basic and surface level meaning, I think. But it seems that on a deeper level, the name Eve has reference to the hope that was communicated back in verse 15 that from the seed of the woman would come a life-giving Savior. It seems to me that that is the deeper meaning here in this text. Eve is the mother of all living. It's a word of hope. It's a word of promise spoken to us here. And this section concludes with the words, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. We must remember that Adam and Eve had sewn together fig leaves to cover the shame of their nakedness. Now, those coverings would not do. If the shame of their nakedness was to be truly covered, God Himself would need to provide the covering. And if the shame of their nakedness was to be truly covered, 
it would have to involve the shedding of blood. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews 9.22. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23. And so here in this scene, we have a picture of, of the Christ who would one day come to atone for sin through the shedding of His own blood. Those animal skins would have functioned as both law and gospel to Adam and Eve. I want you to put yourself there in their situation. They sinned. They ran from the sound of God and hid themselves amongst the trees of the garden. They frantically tried to sew together coverings for themselves. But they're called out by God. They're judged by Him. But here we see God communicate His mercy and grace when He takes the skin of an animal, and he fashions it together and applies it to the man and to the woman. It's a word of grace. It's a word that says to them, though you have sinned so terribly against me, I will provide a covering for you. I will provide atonement for you. Those skins, think of, think of Adam and Eve. Put yourself in their position. As they wore those skins, would it not have functioned both as law and gospel? Each day as they went about in those skins, would they not have reminded uh, Adam and Eve of the terrible sin that they had committed? Would it not have been a reminder of the innocency that was lost? Would it not have been a reminder of the shame that they experienced that was now being covered? It would have functioned as, as a kind of law to them. Remember your sin. Look at what your sin has cost. Blood now had to be shed on your behalf. Your sin, your shame had to be covered by God. But it would have also functioned, those skins would have also functioned as gospel. It would have reminded them that God has shown them mercy and grace. God was willing to cover the shame of their nakedness and to allow them to go on living for a time so that they might repent and have faith in God. It's a reminder to them of the vileness of their sin and also of God's gracious provision. What a what an incredible passage this is. I, I said at the beginning of this sermon, I, I feel as if we could spend so much time here settling down with it and teasing out all of the symbolism contained within it. But, but hopefully you're able to see uh, the, the gist of the meaning of it at least so that you can appreciate this text all the more. In, in this narrative, we have found a mixture of good news with bad, haven't we? The curses and judgments in this text help us to understand why the world we live in today is often marked by difficulty and travail. We live in God's world, but the world is not the same as the one that came from His hand. This world is now characterized by trial and tribulation, pain and suffering, ultimately death. This is the consequence of our sin. But God, by His mercy and grace, has not left us without hope. He promised to send a Redeemer. He promised to provide life. He promised to provide atonement and covering for our sins. Indeed, this He has accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear Paul's words in Romans 3, 21-26, and with these we will close. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who was put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He has passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one 
who has faith in Jesus. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in heaven, help us to understand your word. We thank you for this little narrative that we find in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 14 and following. Lord, may we look upon the true meaning of it as we consider it when it is compared to the rest of Holy Scripture. May we see where this story goes. May we see how this seed develops and matures and grows. Father, and having considered these things, having considered your word carefully, may we come to fix our attention upon Christ Jesus the Lord, who was put forth as a propitiation for our sins, who has atoned for the sins of his people. And Father, having looked upon Christ Jesus our Lord, may we be found clothed in him, covered by his righteousness, having our sins washed away by his shed blood, God, we do confess to you and believe that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We believe that we are not capable of covering our own shame, our own guilt. But we are thankful that you are a God of mercy and kindness and grace, that you are willing to cover it for us. We thank you for what you have provided, God. Give us faith, we pray. For those who do not yet have faith, who are still trusting in their own goodness and righteousness, Lord, would you break them by the power of your Holy Spirit and by your law? Would you bring them to a place of true humility to where they look to Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins? Do this in your mercy, we pray. And for, the, for those of us who have professed faith in Christ, strengthen it, Lord, and cause us to persevere to the end. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people say, Amen.